Blog Talk Radio. trying to figure out that proper fade out with that song, but that is our new theme song by Adam Spiegel. It's fantastic. It's also in my movie, uh, new, uh, The Newest Breed, uh, History and Guide to the Mets Fan, Part 1, and uh, Part 2 is going to be dropping this Friday, a little shameless plug there. But without further ado on this awesome, awesome opening day, Eve, I'm going to bring on Rich Baracco of Connecticut. What's going on, Rich? Hey, Sam. It, um... You know, you said it. it. It's opening day eve, which for most of us who are you know, heavily invested in the sport, it's kind of like Christmas Eve or Hanukkah or whatever your you know your religious affiliation is. It's a very important day. It's it's a day of excitement, um, you know, a day of anticipation. And no matter how old you are, many of these opening days you've been through, it's still fun. It makes you feel like a kid, and, and I love it. So I'm doing well because it's opening day eve, as you said. Exactly. It really should be a national holiday, but we'll have to talk about that another time. Uh, and, and without further ado, uh, the Bensonhurst representation here at a Medicine Podcast, and that is Mike LaColon. What's going on, Mike? Well, what's up, and what's up, Rich? How you guys doing? Doing good. I'm. I'm. I, I was just telling you off air. You know, this is bittersweet for me. I, I've been at many opening day over the last six years, and unfortunately. I'm going to be out here in Denver, but that doesn't mean I haven't set it up uh, to be watching tomorrow. And, and Mike, I'm going to go right to you uh, with this. I know that you said that you you uh, gathered up the lineup that they uh, they released, and uh, why don't you drop that on us? Because I actually am, am completely ignorant to it. Yeah, they posted it on SNY earlier today. And without further ado, leading off, Brandon Nimmo. Second, Johanna Cespedes. Batting third, Jay Bruce. Batting cleanup, Cabrera. And that, you know, that was a little bit of a surprise. Batting fifth, Todd Frazier. Batting sixth, Gonzalez. Batting seventh, uh, Kevin Ploiecki. Batting eighth, Noah Syndergaard. And batting ninth, Ahmed Rosario. Take it away. Rich, go ahead. And obviously I think I know, you know, what we can – start with, which was the, the end part of that. Yeah, you know, as I hear, think about the lineup, I, the two obvious things jump out to me. Uh, number one is Cabrera batting cleanup is a bit odd. But okay, you know, I, I, I suppose that's fine. I Somebody has to bat cleanup, and I guess gone are the days that, uh, you know, it was your Boog Powell-like slugger, so... Um, in the current age of baseball where, you know, we no longer do the traditional, why not? You know, Cabrera can back cleanup as well as anybody else can. The other thing that I'm pointing to is Ploiecki, and I, and I find that to be interesting. Yes, I understand the Ploiecki-Cindergaard relationship. I do get that. But a lot of the vibe coming out of Port St. Lucie this spring has been that, yes, it'll be a – basically a timeshare between Ploiecki and Darno, but everything I'm hearing is it might be 55% Ploiecki, 45% Darno. I think Mickey likes Ploiecki. I think the organization um, likes likes what it saw. 
late season last year from Plawecki. And I think, you know, Darno's problems haven't gone away. You know, he still struggles throwing people out. They may have um, finally said to themselves, okay, you know what, we have to give this kid a shot. If you give Plawecki a, a, at least a really, really good shot, and if that means giving him a few more games and Darno, so be it. So those are the two things that jump out at me. The thing about the pitcher batting eighth, who cares? I mean, I um, I give up on that. I think it was a, a Tony Larusa gimmick, and it probably is. But I think the statistics on that show that the pitcher doesn't really it, it doesn't really matter statistically where the pitcher bats eighth or ninth. They'll still hit about the same. They'll still do about as much sacrificing. So whatever that that one doesn't doesn't phase me at all. Yeah, but in this particular instance, with the power that Syndergaard has, you know, he might actually be protecting. What, uh, uh, Mike, what did you say? Who was batting seventh? Was it Plowecki? Batting seventh is Plowecki, yes. All right, so, yeah, he kind of almost gives, you know, you're not going to go lightly, even if he can't necessarily hit a curveball, Noah. But at the same time, then uh, if there is something brewing, you got Rosario coming up, you know, trying to learn his trade, but he's also speed right next to Brandon Nimmo. You know, uh, Mike, I, I know it's it's kind of like, like Rich just said. It's like, all right, whatever. But I think in this particular instance, it does. you kind of understand where he's coming from with Noah Syndergaard there. Yeah, I do. Uh, and, again, this is only opening day. This isn't going to be a fixed lineup. We know that because Conforto still needs to come back, blah, blah, blah. Uh, I'm just excited to see Brandon Nimmo in the lineup. Uh, I'm just excited for his upcoming season. Uh, Thor batting ace, you know, we've seen it before. I, I get it. And I get what he's trying to do, lining up Rosario, Nimmo, and Cespedes together. Uh, so, again, uh, I'm not going to make a big deal out of it. Uh, I'm not averse to the ploy. So, it's opening day. Let's just have fun with it. It is what it is. Cabrera batting fourth is the only thing, uh, you know, that just jumps out at me, and I'm like, uh, perhaps we could have gone a different way. But, again, it is what it is. When you get a bad suspect a second like that, you know, uh, one of these other spots in the lineup are going to be compromised, and, and, you know, it's not going to quite in, fit in as nicely as we'd like it to. Rich, and I was going to go to you with this, uh, actually, so that's perfect segue. Um, Cabrera batting fourth, it's not like he doesn't have power. And, you know, at his best, he, he is a 20-home run guy. And, and, and uh, you know, be, you know, if he's a 280 hitter, then he's a better overall hitter, too, when he's getting that power. So I, I can't really hate on it too much because it's not like we're, we're seeing John Mayberry Jr. there. That's true. You know, and the other thing about Cabrera, too, is that he's a switch hitter. So, um He's not compromised lefty-righty in the middle of the game. You know, if uh, Mets have guys on base and and the fourth spot comes up and they – what are they going to do, bring in a lefty, bring in a righty? You know, he, he can counter both. Yes, he's a better left-handed hitter, but he still can bat you know, from both sides of the plate. So that that's a plus. Um, you know, it's interesting to me how Keith Hernandez always said, and Mike, you know, from our day, we, we remember – your best hitter always hit third. That was your best pure hitter. Not your best power hitter, but your best pure hitter. And now the current thinking, for whatever the reason, is to bat that really good hitter second now. Um, and the reason I hear is that it's more about optimizing the number of at-bats that person might get, get that person to the plate when the leadoff hitter's on. 
So that seems to be a new philosophy, and so they've migrated Cespedes up. And again, you know, Cabrera batting clean up your right, Sam. He does. He, he can pop the ball out of the yard. You know, he's a switch hitter, so, so why not? You know, what the hell? Give it a shot. And, you know, I'm sitting here and I'm, I'm digesting this, and you know what? The more, the more agreeable I find it. Uh, Cabrera's been one of our, our best clutch hitters since he's gotten here. So, you know, could do to you, Rich. You said it well. Now, isn't it crazy? Isn't it crazy that we're segueing to the third year of Esdrubal Cabrera? I feel like we were talking about this uh, to the point that he could be a seven-year Mets veteran at this point. <laughs> yeah. Rich, if you want, if you want to talk about Esdrubal, I mean, yeah, go ahead. Well, the thing about Cabrera is um, he he's getting. You know, the middle-ish, end-ish of his career. So, obviously, you know, he's a little bit compromised defensively now. But he never had a lot of range. But he doesn't – but he has even less range now. So, he's becoming a different kind of player. You know, he, he's now in there more for the bat than the glove because, again, of that compromised range. Um, in my perfect world, he would have played third base and we would have had a uh, a more – speedy, dynamic player playing second where you need that range, but he made it pretty clear he doesn't want to play third. They went out and got Frazier. Okay. So, you know, Cabrera is an asset that the team has, and make the most of that asset. And like I just said, you're not going to optimize that asset on defense because he's he's not as good as he was defensively. He does have a good bat. He has some power. He's a switch hitter. So make the most of them that you can offensively and tolerate the defense. And and if that means batting him cleanup, go with it. You know, I'm fine with it. Yeah, and in terms of that, you know, I'm looking at Carlos Martinez. Now, I'm not sure what his numbers are uh, against Carlos Martinez, but maybe that has something to do with it. You know, oh, well, we actually do have this right here. Um it looks like, yeah, you know, he's only had six at-bats, and he's batting three thirty-three, so that he's gotten two hits off of Carlos. So there's nothing that jumps out to you. I mean, the person who has the most at-bats here, and it makes complete sense, is Jay Bruce. Uh, and he has a two eleven average with two home runs and two RBIs. I mean, the one who has uh, the most at-bats and the most RBIs against Carlos Martinez is uh, Adrian Gonzalez with four RBIs. So, I mean, you know, Carlos Martinez, he's fresh relatively to the league. Uh, and, you know, you're going to see, uh, you know, the Cincinnati Red is the one who's faced him the most. But, uh, you know, he's, there's a reason why they're facing him on this day. It's because he's the ace countering Noah Syndergaard, Mike. Yeah. You know, uh, excuse me, I was in the middle of writing something. But, yeah, you're right. Just pass by me for a second, please. Sure, sorry, yeah. sorry. Uh, Jose Reyes, truth, Rich. Has truth be told, somebody slipped something under the door, so I just got to address this real quick, so just get me. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, no, do what you got to do, man. Do what you got to do. Rich, Jose Reyes has the highest batting average, uh, crazy enough. Um, well, uh, other than, Yoannis uh, Cespedes yeah, has 12 at-bats and a 333 batting average, but actually, it, it's interesting when you look at this, as Gerbil Cabrera, Yoannis Cespedes, and Jose Reyes, who are apparently the buddies of the clubhouse, uh, have the the highest batting average uh, of the most at bats against Carlos Martinez. Yeah, and and it's interesting. Reyes isn't in the lineup, but I but I'm sure that went into um, that went into Mickey's thinking too. 
you know, that, that why not try to get, uh, get Cabrera into a spot where if this is a guy he's seeing well, um, why not try to um, get him into a run-producing spot in the order? And I like that. You know, why not? Because there is something to it. When, when guys own certain pitchers, it, it generally isn't an accident. Generally, they just see this guy well, what this guy throws, you know, happens to maybe move into the plane of the swing better. You know, when you have an established history against someone and you're doing well against that person, play the odds there, and, and why not put him in a spot where he could do the most damage? So, um, so yeah, and, and with Cespedes, he'll be up second in the order. Great. You know, get, get him as many at-bats as possible. Reyes is going to be doing, at least for now, what Reyes is brought back here to do which has come off the bench, and he likely won't do that against Martinez. But, um, but the Mets have some guys who can hit Martinez, and, and I'm, I am not at all sad that Adam Wainwright isn't getting this start. And, right, the only place that you could see they, where they would have put Jose Reyes into it is where Dribble Cabrera is. And, obviously, they wanted a little bit more pop in that position right now. Right now. So it's going to be very interesting to see how they utilize Jose Reyes. I mean, especially like you just said, it's not like, he had terrible numbers against Carlos Martinez. He arguably has more even numbers over the course of 13 and bats with that one home run than Estrubal does with, uh, with six, but it's neither here nor there. I mean, it's just how you feel uh, it's going to work tomorrow at City Field. Uh, Mike, how, how you doing over there? I'm good. I'm, I'm, I'm with you. I'm back. Uh, you know, Cabrera, Reyes, I see them actually – Perhaps getting equal time, uh, with perhaps Cabrera getting more more time than Reyes. Reyes is here to be a bench player. I I, I don't think he's gonna uh, outplay that role. Not 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 on this roster. Uh, I'm not seeing that. I think you're right, Mike. Rich. I mean, I I think that yeah. And to go to you, Rich. It, I, I think we sometimes forget, you know, as pessimistic as us Mets fans can be, um, the bench is looking pretty sound, especially considering that, you know, who knows the kind of uh, of um, what Brandon Nimmo, what, you know, what he's going to force over the next month before Michael Conforto comes back. So, I mean, you know, this is a pretty deep team as of now. It, oh, it absolutely is. And, you know, the, the team has its flaws. You know, we, we've talked about them in past podcasts. Um, they don't have a lot of speed on the team. They they probably don't have a prototypical leadoff hitter, though Nimmo sort of fits that mold with his high on base percentage, and but in a very very you know small sample size. So so the roster may have its flaws, but but it's very deep. There's no question. When you look at the bench that this team has, you have a guy like Reyes who's been a you know multiple time All Star, uh, can play two positions well, uh, can play a third you know third base decently well and in a in a 19 inning game he can play the outfield if he has to so you have that you have Wilmer Flores who just murders left-handed pitching so you have that you have Juan Lagares gold glove quality center field play on the bench and um, you have Darno and uh, so so yeah I mean you know this team there are some players on this team and and um, the starting lineup is certainly is certainly qualified too so I, I do think this is a deep roster. And if I may, Sam, I, I know we're not on pitching right now, we're not on the bullpen right now, but uh, something you may be interested to know, something breaking on Twitter here that was just called to my attention. 
Uh, a couple of the beat writers are tweeting that the Mets are discussing adding Greg Holland, the um, the currently unemployed Whoa. free agent reliever. And may I share his statistics from last year with Colorado? Last year with Colorado, uh, Greg Holland saved 41 games, and um, his, he allowed just 40 hits. In 58 innings pitched, I believe. Let me get the IP right. 57.1 innings pitched, 40 hits. I could live with that every day of the week. 57 innings pitched, 70 Ks. Um, you know, I assume because Greg Holland would like a job and it's opening day eve, his price has probably really dropped. Um, you know, why this guy doesn't have a job, I don't know. But if the Mets can pull this off, even on a short-term deal, wow. let's jump all over. I mean, the guy's 32 years old, so he's in the prime of his career. Uh, and, again, it's breaking on Twitter as we speak. I think that would be a real stealth move, and I hope they go through with it. Mike? Uh, he's no stranger to the Mets. He was on the Royals in 2015, but he missed all of 2016. Uh, so perhaps that has some teams out there somewhat leery. Uh, 2017, last year, like Rich said, with Colorado, he led the league in games finished. Uh, and to me, that's a little bit more indicative of the workload imposed upon him than saves. Uh, yeah, I mean, if you can do it, do it. You can never have enough pitching. Uh, it's just a shame that he's not a lefty. We're going into the season with one left-handed starter and one left-handed reliever, uh, considering that Jason Vargas is injured. So that's all. Uh, you know, just a little minor, minor gripe, that's all. <laughs> well, in terms of uh, Jason Vargas, it looks like they kind of dodged a bullet in some way, Rich, with that. I hope so. You know, it's interesting what you read because he was throwing, you know, very shortly after the surgery, you know, obviously surgery is on his non-throwing hand, and the first thing I read is that he can't catch return throws, you know, even lob throws back to him because of the pain. Well, naturally, he just had surgery. But then when I hear he'll miss one or two starts, that seems a bit unrealistic to go from, you know, can't even catch a lob throw back to the catcher, back from the catcher, to, um, to only missing one or two starts. Is he going to heal that fast? Uh, I don't know. Maybe. But where I am with Vargas is I- I'm going to say that I'll be fine with seeing him toward the end of April. If we see him sooner, Great. It just adds to that depth we've been talking about. But at this point, you know, I'm um, I'm not going to count on him until until late April. Just just give that thing a chance to heal. Something else going on, on Twitter. Can anybody? Does anybody know? Is there there's a Mets Foundation Foundation thing going on tonight? I don't know. Rich, have you I seen think, this? Have you heard about this? Have you seen this? Um, I know they do it every year, and I didn't know that it was tonight. But um, but it doesn't surprise me. Um, they I know they do it every year. Well, it's you know we're getting we're getting you know bachelorette, uh, uh, rose, gift jokes with the uh, the suits you know that are lining up here. Uh, one person said it's the best. This is the best car dealership ever, uh, based off of this photo of basically you know about probably eleven or twelve of the guys in suits. And then there was also, what was really funny, was um, looks like Jerry Blevins has a late-night talk show going on called Dinner with Friends. Dinner with Friends hosted by Jay Blev. Uh, so that's what's going on 
as we speak uh, in the Mets Twitter world and the Mets world, actually, because it's the Mets Foundation. So, yeah, we're we're getting underway, and, and it's nice to see them lose uh, the night before. You know, it, it, this is I a part of me feels like you know it's 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 another chapter in a good way to what we started in 2015. If you whoever wants to go, Mike, if you want to go with that. No, good, Rich, good. <laughs> with that, I'm sorry, guys. But you think about all right. I'm happy to go with that one. Thank you. Um, thank you for that because I do want to talk about that. So 2015, you know, started with the Mets having expectations. Harvey was back, all that stuff, and they had. Remember, let's not forget they had that 10 game winning streak in April, that was snapped at Yankee Stadium. Let's not forget that. And then the middle of the year, it was like, oh my God, it's a disaster. John John Mayberry Jr., the aforementioned, is batting cleanup on my team, and Eric Campbell's playing. What is going on here? Get Cespedes, go to the World Series. Okay. The following year, in unmetsian fashion, they actually make the playoffs a second time. Great. Nobody knows what the hell happened last year. It was just you know just a sea of injuries, but hopefully. To your point, Sam, about about another chapter, hopefully 17 was just a disastrous thing that happened that's in the rearview mirror now, and what 18 could be is a continuation of a decent run for the Mets. Let's face it, you know, 15, 16, 18, maybe this is a little bit of a decent run where, you know, they're consistently competitive, making the postseason – so, yeah, I like to look at it that way. I like to look at it as a continuation of a story that was, you know, begun to be written in, 19, in, 19, uh, in uh, 2015 and had a blip, and now we'll keep going. So, yeah, I do like to look at it like that. Uh, I'm with you again. Sorry Pass about that. You I apologize. Uh, where are we? Uh I'm happy. Perhaps last year needed to happen. I don't know if Terry Collins would still be here. I don't know if Dan Warden would still be here. But perhaps last year needed to happen the way it did. Uh, because, you know, what's happened since then? Sandy Alderson overhauled the conditioning and oversight program. And, you know, the, let's face it, he built this team on starting pitching. So he employed some redundancy in, in hiring Mickey Calloway and Dave Ireland uh, in, in order to try to maximize the team's strength. So, you know, conditioning and, and physical sciences and new applications and the redundancy between Calloway and Ireland, you know, uh, I, I applaud the moves. And again, uh, last year occurred, but we had been complaining about what plagues, you know, have afflicted the Mets for some years now. And then last year just came to a head. So I guess what I'm saying is that the the change is good and I welcome it. Uh, You know, hiring Callaway was not a bad move. Hiring Island was not a bad move. We have good pitchers. So you know, hooray for trying to maximize the team's strength. That that's where my head is. And and I'm not so sure they would have taken such great lengths over the off season had not last season turned out so badly. You know, well I, I think 
good point. Yeah, I'm yeah, sorry. Go ahead, Rich. I think no, that's go a good point, Mike. And I think one other thing that, as you were speaking, that popped into my head is, you know, on the, we've been doing this podcast now since 2013. It's in, it was 2000, February 13, I think, was our first one when we were with a different uh, affiliation. But the three of us have been on these for five years now. And, and over those five years, I've criticized Sandy Alderson. We all have. But one thing, when he started selling off the assets last year, he did say, that he viewed what he was doing as, quote, hitting the pause button, not a an overall rebuild. And you know what? We have to give the guy credit because that's exactly what he did. He hit the pause button. He traded off some assets he had to get rid of. Well, had to in quotes, but that's what teams do, you know, when they're falling out of the race. And instead of letting the team spiral into the abyss, he went out and added. You know, he added Frazier. He, uh, he brought back Jay Bruce. He he invested in this. He brought in Vargas. He might bring in Greg Holland. So, you know, I, I, as you were speaking, Mike, I, I thought that it would be a good time to say, for as many problems as we as fans have with this organization about them being mysterious about injuries and, and blah, 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 and not always being truthful, I, I, I'll tip my cap to Sandy for that one because uh, and the organization in general. Because they said we're pressing the pause button. As soon as the season was over, they brought in Callaway. They started bringing in these players. So at least at this point, based on what they've done, it looks like it looks like that did bear out. It really has in a world with most people. Uh, they're pretty active, you know, both on and off the field in the front office and on the on the, on the roster itself. So let's see. And you know. I second what you said about about the organization, guys, um, but also uh, with the whole Terry Collins thing, you know. Let's not uh, mince words here. We basically were saying what was going to happen, you know, happened. Like, we were basically basically saying the whole time this whole Terry Collins was going to collapse, you know, and he, he, he got some success, and we saw him carry that success over for a couple of years. But at the second, the the immediate sign that it wasn't going to hold up, Sandy Alderson took care of it. And we got to give him credit for that, like you guys were saying. So, you know, and and not to, you know, uh, keep brushing our shoulder off about it, but Terry Collins was was a stop holder, and he, he got himself caught up in a World Series run. And there was no way that, you know, there there was definitely a chance that they lost that Dodgers series that he did not keep his job. And the Mets said, all right, well, he wasn't the right person for a, a deep playoff run. And Or they might have said, let's give him another chance, and who knows. But um, I still think that the fact that he went into a World Series run gave him more leeway in 2016, which led to what ended up happening, which was just the eventual collapse of, of 2017, of the Terry Collins era. So, uh, Rich, I, um, I'd like to hear what you have to say first about that. No, I, I think you're right, Sam. You know, we talked about that, and, and I think we, we've agreed that what happened in 2015, I think, surprised the organization. Um, it probably wasn't supposed to happen like that, and Terry probably would have been gone at that point because, at least as I recall it, it was sort of like they were building, building, building. If you remember, you know, 13, you started to see the young pitching, Wheeler, Harvey, okay, 14, they they finished the season well. They played 500 ball in the second half. 
and uh, and you're like, hmm, you know, this is definitely building in the right direction. I think the organization was targeting 16 for a run. 15 circumstances. Washington wasn't playing well. They got Cespedes. I really think they were going to – they're planning on winning, you know, 82, 83 games, maybe 84 and 15, and then getting rid of Terry, saying, okay, now we're in the next phase. Well, that – it just got convoluted because they won, they won a year earlier. And you're right. How can you – how can you let a guy go when he just took you to the World Series? Now, I would argue he cost you a chance at winning that World Series, but I don't want post-traumatic stress disorder here. Um, so I'm not even going to go there. But, um, but, yeah, I think you're absolutely right. I think the way the circumstances are and the way they played out gave Terry three more years behind the helm than, or two more years behind the helm than, uh, than I think they had originally bargained for. I really do believe that. But now they're here. Uh, Mike, what, what do you think? Yeah, I agree uh, with a lot of that. I think they did rush it. Uh, nobody was expecting to win in 2015, or at least the National League Championship, as Rich says. Uh, that was projected for 2016. He's right. My problem is that they bogged themselves down once they did. Uh, they they started bogging themselves down with, uh, you know, uh, Win now, veterans, as opposed to sticking with the original rebuilding plan. That's my only point of contention. That despite winning in 2015, they should have continued along with the plan. But instead, uh, you know, they started delving into unnecessary veterans, as far as I'm concerned, and it kind of hindered the process, the progress of our upcoming minor leaguers. Some of them have suffered because of that. Uh, but it is what it is, and here we are, 2018. Let's move forward. Exactly, and uh, I think we're going to keep this one a little bit of a shorter one on opening day Eve. So without further ado, I'm going to segue to our next segment, which is our favorite opening day memories. And I'm going to go to you uh, first, Rich. Um, you know, we were talking a little bit off the air about some of our, our opening day experiences, so I'd like uh, you to begin. Well, thank you, Sam. And um, we were talking off the air, and I, I kind of figured you'd ask this question, so I started thinking about mine, and, and I'm going to go with this one. 1985, and I'll tell you why that is. So, Mike, you know, you remember, Sam, you may remember, too, that um, in 84, the Mets surprised. You know, they were supposed to be a cellar dweller, and they were in contention until the last week of the season. They were actually eliminated in the last week of the season by the Cubs. So 84 was like, Oh, wow, it's a lot of fun. Can't wait for 85 to start. Then what do they do? December 84, they go out and they get Gary Carter. And now it's like, oh, my God, I cannot wait till opening day. The Mets have Gary Carter. Last year was a great year. This is going to be great. Go to Shea Stadium on opening day of 85. And it's what it should be. And I know a lot of people are going to cringe when I say this. It was freaking freezing. I think Mm -hmm. the – I think the air temperature at the beginning of the game was in the high 30s. It was windy. So a bunch of us went. We were in the upper deck, cuddled under blankets, you know, suffering it out. Game goes to extra innings. We all know the story. Game goes to extra innings. And who steps up to the plate in storybook fashion? The guy they just got, Gary Carter. And, by the way, who's on the mound for St. Louis? The guy they traded for Keith Hernandez, Neil Allen. And Gary hits one over the wall and – even though you were a human popsicle at that point, you know, it was like, wow, this is exactly what should have happened. This is going to be the greatest year ever. 
And I just remember going home that day thinking that, you know, how could the Mets not win the World Series this year? Everything is, is pointing in the right direction. It was a great experience. We know it didn't work out that way. But I would say 85, for those reasons, was my favorite opening day memory. You know, um, I'm, I hate predictions, but I'm going to go ahead and make one. Todd Frazier walk-off. <laughs> <laughs> Just going with the whole, uh, the whole Gary Carter uh, vibe with that uh, this free agent. Anyway, um, Mike, go ahead. I'm just going to take it back two more years. Uh, 1983, Tom Seaver's return. That trumps all. Uh, prior to that, I had been to every Mets opening day from 76 to 82. Uh, and then 83, but I, I wasn't there in 84 nor 85. Uh, but, uh, man, that, that was that, that was special. That was special. I was a teenager, and, you know, after seeing him go and to come back, it was it was a special moment in Shake. Uh, a lot of tears, you know, from fans surrounding me and whatnot. And, you know, he walked out of the ballpen down the first baseline and took this cap. And special. It was just great to see him back. Uh, and it was one of those moments where you say, well, he should never have been gone in the first place. But, you know, at least for that season, at least, it was great to have him back. And that particular day just... You know, uh, any opening day since that day trumps all. Yeah, that must have been a real special one. I'm going to go, and I really, you know, it has to be 2015, and it's on the road, honestly. But in terms of city field, if we're st- sticking with that, um, you know, I, I want to I wanna go down 2012 first before I go down 2015 because, you were just talking about Gary Carter, and, and 2012 was a very bittersweet one. Yet, it you know there were were, were some beautiful. There was a, it was a beautiful dichotomy because you had celebrating Gary Carter's life, but memorializing him, uh, while at the same time Johan Santana was coming back from injury after an entire year off. And when, when you look at that, there was a lot of hope that some strides could get made. And for a hot second, including that game, it looked like strides were being made. And, and per usual, uh, 2012 falls into the 2010 and 1978 category where you're basically close to 500 for most of the season until July, and then everything bottoms out and you lose close to 90 games. And with 2012, when you think about it, considering it was one nothing, David Wright, uh, I believe, got the, the game-winning hit in the fifth inning, uh, Johan Santana got through five scoreless innings, and Frank Francisco uh, uh, saved the game. So everything that you thought could come together to make this team uh, special did for that one day, and that that is you know that's one of the Mets' own opening day in many ways. Um, but with 2015, I had gone down to Washington. I decided, how can I not go start this this year off and and Considering, you know, we were facing Matt Scherzer, um, I ended up uh, just tagging along with the seven line that was out in the outfield. And it was just a spectacular game that of any opening day game that really, really meant something, you got to point to that one with Scherzer on the mound and us trying to make a statement that we were, we were actually something after all these years and the Nats weren't going to push us around anymore. 
that that might be the most important opening day of the last ten years. Rich, what do you think of that? Uh, well, I remember that, and, and what I remember about the fifteen opening day was everybody was screaming that why is Bartolo Colon starting opening day when the Mets had all these great great starters, and, and how in the world could he start Colon? So. Um, I remember you went, Sam, I remember we talked about that, and um, you're right. I mean, everything you said is right. You know, Washington was, was already the beast of the East. The Mets were, you know, again, thinking about what I was saying earlier about how uh, they had ticked up in 14 and we had reason for optimism, but as I think, Mike, you've said on this podcast a few times, if you want to be the man, you have to beat the man. And so the Mets had to beat the man. They had to go in there. They had to beat Washington. They had to beat Scherzer, and they did. They beat him with Cologne on the mound, and I don't know how the hell they did that, but somehow they did. And if you remember, they lost the next game at night, but then Harvey, I believe he beat Strasburg in game three. And I'm not sure if it was Strasburg for them, but I know it was a day game in game three, and Harvey won it. So, yeah, that's a great memory, too. And, and, you, and you know what? Even though the 15 season was up and down and then up, um, it really did set the tone. You know, that opening day game really gave us fans reason to believe that, you know, the Mets could play with these guys. And it probably put in their in the Mets' minds and in Washington's minds that the Mets could play with them too. It was a good April. Not to mention Henry Mejia. Yeah, Sam. No, I was just going to say that Buddy Carlisle saved that game. <laughs> because Henry Mejia was injured and then out for steroids in a few uh, days. No, I was just going to say that that was important, uh, that I have that saying, that you can't win pennants in April, but you certainly can lose them. And, and they rode that good start through a dreadful summer right up until the uh, trade deadline. Uh, I'll throw out one more opening day, though. 1993, I saw the Colorado Rockies' first ever game in Major League Baseball. <laughs> I went opening day, 1993, Mets versus Rockies. That was cool. I thought I'd throw that the one out. The 3-0 and and the 1993 Mets. Yeah, and, and the Mets are 36-20 and 20 on opening day. So, woo-hoo. Yeah. So, to finish uh, out with that 2015 opening day, uh, what's interesting, if I remember correctly, and I might not, but I left – after uh, doing my usual pizza round, um, which was, like, into, like, 1 or 2 in the morning, and then I took, like, a 5 o'clock, 6 o'clock bus and ended up walking around Washington, um, you know, and just enjoying myself before, I think it was, like, a 3.30 game or something crazy like that, but it's not just a normal 1 o'clock time, but it was really a lot of fun. And then I ended the season with a road trip down to Washington uh, when I didn't have an apartment. And I was like, yeah, you know, uh, I was I was staying at my mom's in between places. And I was like, I might as well go uh, crash in an uh, in Airbnb and uh, Georgetown Inn for a couple of days while watching the Mets. That first game that I saw, I didn't, wasn't there for the Labor Day game, um, which has one of the more iconic images in Mets history with David Wright pumping his fist uh, crossing the plate in that game, that Labor Day game. But the next game when they – uh, came back uh, from 7-1 deficit in the, I believe it was the seventh inning after Joanna Cespedes let uh, basically what ended up being an error uh, inside the park home run for Michael Taylor uh, with Harvey on the mound. Um, and, and this is a complete digression from opening day, but we're talking about tone set. That certainly helps uh, that moment because Washington 
was quivering when uh, being led by Matt Williams, and it all started on opening day in 2015. And without further ado, our opening day eve last words. Rich. Um, well, I'll, I'll be trite here, and I'll say my word is excited. Um, when we have done this recently in the past few weeks, it's been anticipation and all that, but now it's just excited. There's no more anticipation. It's here. Um, in about 12, 15 hours, I'll be sitting in my seat at City Field watching the game, and no more talking about it, no more, you know, this guy should be the 25th guy in the roster. The roster's set. The game is ready to go, and I'm excited. I, I really am. I, I think the team, um, like I said earlier, although flawed, in some ways it's a good roster. I think they've got a shot, and I'm, I'm ready to go. Mike? Me too. I, I wait for the moment to hit me. You know, sometimes I'm too immersed in hockey and basketball and the locals, and, and sometimes I just let opening day in the first, you know, week or two just pass me by, e- even throughout the playoffs in hockey and basketball. Sometimes I, I just let the season, you know, blow right by. It just depends how they're doing. But it hit me early this year, so uh, I'm, I'm excited for tomorrow, to say the least. My last words are, you got to believe. I unfortunately cannot make it because I'm trying to believe and help out in that belief with my dad to fight cancer. And so the words of this franchise never ring more true than to me right now when we're trying to keep this uh, keep this battle against the ultimate villain going and keep believing that the Mets are going to finally get that crown once more after so many years. So now it obviously hasn't been as many years as the Cubs, but like I like to say sometimes, the Mets have such tragedy in, and, and comedy of errors in, uh, in the 31 years or so, since uh, 32 years now since the last time they won a World Series, that it's basically like they're packing 108 years of suffering into those 32 years. So uh, it, it, it wow. is how it is, but every year we need to keep the faith. And uh, as Tug McGraw, one of the ultimate Mets, once said, you got to believe. Happy opening, happy opening day, Eve, folks. I, I, I'm, I'm completely uh, aghast about it all. <laughs> it's great. I'm so happy it's here. And the only way to end this Messian podcast is let's go Mets. Take care, everybody. Let's go Mets. Rich, let's enjoy the game tomorrow. Thank you. You, too, you guys, too. <laughs>